Welcome back to another episode of Act Root to Fruit. My name is Marcel Tassar. I'm a psychologist here trying to dig up the roots of the contextual behavioral sciences. And um, I'm feeling a little bit, as, as I we walk into this, Jonathan, I'm feeling a heaviness, I have to say, you know, and uh, it's different because generally when I, when we start these, I'm feeling up and bubbly and uh, I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so I'm, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Jonathan Cantor out of good old Seattle University of Washington. He's the director of the uh, Center for the Science of Social Connection and a research professor, fellow in uh, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences, and author of uh, some some beautiful works of, of science and love, and has been doing work in areas that need attention and don't get it uh, enough um, in, in for a long time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm um, in Milwaukee here at the 16th Street Community Health Centers, Community Health, Mental Health Facility, FQHC, and, uh, and you were here doing some stuff on the ground probably 10 years ago. So, um, so welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Marcel. And I can join you in the heaviness that you say you feel at the beginning. I guess I, I don't know. I think I, I coax that heaviness out of people. That's sort of a natural thing in my interactions at this point. So maybe we'll both just lean in it, lean into it together as we talk about today. But also, I think the heaviness is a product of our, of our times and the seriousness of what's happening in our world right now. Right. So we can, we can potentially lean into that today and yeah. maybe we'll find some notes of optimism and love just to make sure people don't uh, just click off of us right from the beginning, but um, important <laughs> stuff to talk about, I think. Yeah. 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 And, um, and just for time, I guess, to, to date this, you know, this will, this will come out in sometime early October, uh, but we're a few days after uh, Jacob Blake has been shot getting into his car, trying to, who knows what he was trying to do. I don't know what he was trying to do, but, uh, um, he wasn't, uh, didn't look like he was threatening anybody. Um, yeah. no, it didn't down there in, in Kenosha, just South of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah. um, it seems like Wisconsin over and over again is one of the epicenters of our political and yeah. racial universe, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I, I actually had, a, I was having a conversation with a neighbor of mine recently who was black and, um, I asked them where, because they're they're from the south, uh, the couple, and I asked them where where is it more challenging to be a black person, and um, um, you know they both gave different answers, um, and one was just that it was difficult. You couldn't really necessarily generalize, you know, depending on the setting, and um, and um, um, his partner said that uh, that if she, she felt like like up here because it's 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 uh, it's more covert, it's not. Uh, it's not out there as much. Yeah, and and here in Seattle, I'll say it feels fraught for you and I to both be talking about the the black friends that we are associated with. But I will say I speak to a lot of black people here in Seattle, and and they say moving here to Seattle from other parts of the country, they experience as an an acute and exquisite betrayal. Mm. Um, unlike a place like Milwaukee, where you are, Marcel, which is sort of known to be um, in the 
example of some of the worst racial disparities in the country. And so it's the most seg- um, one of the most segregated cities in the country. Yeah, according to a bunch of metrics, right? And then here in Seattle, people move here, and the liberal progressive reputation precedes it. And then many people experience Seattle as as being liberal in a very superficial way. And mm-hmm. perhaps I've heard somebody say, "Oh, they're liberal," but it really just means they're good at recycling. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and when it comes to when it comes to don't forget about composting, composting as well, of course. Yeah. yeah, we are we are excellent at that. But when it comes to racial awareness and racial yeah. enlightenment, um, yeah. the liberal Seattle hasn't really done its work here either, and we have yeah. big problems. Yeah, you um, know, on that note, I lived in Seattle, and I I want to say that um, I felt Seattle. I, I love Seattle, but I think that there's a difference between. Um, ideologically liberal and politically liberal and, and interpersonally liberal or culture, culturally liberal. But I do think a lot about how, like I mentioned to you before this, you know, these, uh, these kind of unwritten white folks rules that, that we go by and, um, how a lot of that is like leftovers from our, our, the colonizers who came here, the Protestants who, who came here, who are very, very conservative in how they behaved. Right. And and we can look at our history and try to learn the accurate history of Seattle, of Milwaukee, of the country, and we'll see those threads extended throughout and up into the, the present time. And part of what we try to do in contextual behavioral science, of course, is understand our problems and problems in human behavior and human suffering in terms of the context and in terms of the history. That's how we try to understand it. And when you really look at the history here in Seattle or elsewhere, it doesn't paint a rosy picture with respect to, um, to with respect to uh, racial equity and so forth. Yeah. So, do you, do you have your do you have a sense of the context we're in now? Well, you know what's interesting to me about the current context. You can look at the data. So, since the murder of George Floyd, back at the back at the beginning of June, there have been huge changes in public opinion polls, right? And so about a 30% or so increase in support among white Americans for Black Lives Matter, for example, mm-hmm. um, in terms of ex- expressing an attitude or an opinion, about um, 76% of white Americans now say that racial and ethnic discrimination is a major problem in our country. It's continually going up. Only about 9% of white Americans now say racial and ethnic discrimination isn't a problem at all. And so we're having this huge shift in attitudes, especially since George Floyd. And on the one hand, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if those attitude changes don't translate in, you know, in our language into committed action, into on the ground effort to actually change behavior, change policy, change practices, then it's not clear what those attitude changes will will result in. And so I think on the one hand, it's a moment of optimism and excitement from the perspective of racial and social justice. And then at the same time, sort of simultaneously, the flip side of the coin is it's a moment of despair and cynicism uh, that we're not going to actually achieve any real change at this moment. So mm-hmm. it's a complex moment, isn't it? Very, very, especially now, you know, that we're not, um, that we're all kind of on our, in our bubbles. So many layers. Yeah. How do we 
and presuming we're talking mostly to uh, an audience that is in that percent of people who take these problems seriously, assuming we're talking to people who support Black Lives Matter, yeah. how can we use our science, use what we know, use our expertise to translate that into action such that more and more of us every day at the end of the day look back at our behavior that day and say, okay, today I, I was in modern language, I was anti-racist, yeah. you know, in our actions. I think that's one of the things we can talk about, the shift in language to really center this word anti-racist and what that means and doesn't mean and the implications of that in our bodies and on our psychology and as a call to action. Yeah. I, I, I sense, uh, there's that something boiling in you right now, as you say that here. I know about boiling, but like it's it stirs up something for you really deeply. Yeah, I think there's an urgency to the moment. I think my colleagues and I have been doing this work in racism and anti-racism and trying to use ACT and FAP ideas to improve things for a while now. And I think there's this sense that there's a real opportunity in this moment and there's an urgency attached to it. Um, and I think the word anti-racism in particular is a good fit for contextual behavioral science. Some of the words that are the modern language of racism are really important socially um, and in the mainstream. Don't get me wrong, they're very important, but they're hard to understand and fit into a contextual behavioral word worldview yeah. words like white fragility and white privilege and um, microaggressions and especially implicit bias is a very difficult word contextual behaviorally um, but anti-racism has a behavioral clarity to it it's it's simply what are your values and are you engaged in action consistent with those values and i think it's a real stimulating word for us that we could really harness and try to make the most of. Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you want to talk more about some of those words and uh, ways that they could be interpreted by the, the average functional contextualist? Yeah, I think we could talk about that, Marcel. I think having this conversation to white men on a podcast, uh, <laughs> talking about racism is both a really important thing for mm -hmm. us to do, but it's also sort of fraught with, with peril. Mm. Um, I think uh, we yearn to get it right. We also yearn to, at this moment, not take up too much space with our voices unless we're really clear on what the function is and yeah. we have all that worked out. Um, well, what, what I, I want to respond to that and um, agree and add that um, I'm sure you're familiar with a, a gentleman named Tim Wise, who has done yeah. some amazing work and um, been doing it for a long time. And I recommend anybody listening to go go check out his his talks um, wherever they can be found. And uh, you know, he talks about how many people who wouldn't hear hear the same the same mess his message coming from a person of color will hear it from him. Um, and so. Um, I don't, I don't want to do any work to drown out or speak for anybody. Um, yeah, I have a, um, a group of colleagues here in Seattle at the university medical center 
who are on the healthcare equity team, and I'm sort of the the white person on the team. And we joke that when they are dealing with a difficult white person or somebody who's committing microaggressions and is getting defensive about it, that there should be a little hotline where they can just immediately call me and say, we don't want to deal with you right now. It's too hard for us. Speak to Jonathan. Mm. Um, and then I'll step in and try to talk some sense into the white person when uh, when they're getting tired of it and they don't have to. Yeah. So we haven't actually instituted the hotline yet, but it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's a dream for the future, yeah. I would yeah. say. Yeah. So, yeah, there is important work for us to do, I think, um, uh, to, to work alongside black people and people of color in this, in this movement. Um, but it's also hard to get it right. Let's just be honest about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So where does that leave us now? Well, I think one of the important things to me, thinking about this through the lens of contextual behavioral science, I think if people are engaged in this work, reading the books that are being bandied about the public discourse right now, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, or So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Luo, or White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, or several of the others, um, none of those books do a very good job at helping people deal with the psychological obstacles that get in the way of effective action. Um, those books often give people good instructions on how to be anti-racist, and they identify the problem very well, but there's sort of a gap in the middle, which is the gap that psychology can fill, Okay. which is, which is how do we overcome those obstacles if somebody's feeling guilt or shame, if a white person is feeling guilt or shame? Uh, how do you respond to those feelings such that you can do something effective rather than just slip into avoidance or inaction? If you're feeling overwhelmed or full of despair, how do you respond to those feelings such that you can still be effective if you're feeling defensive? You know, it's essentially, I think what we're good at as clinical connectional behavioral scientists is working with all those feelings that, um, that are really hard to address when we're talking about race and racism and interracial interactions. I think there's a lot of potential for contextual behavioral science to really help people move in value directions here that currently is mostly untapped. So yeah. I'd love to talk about that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're, you're saying folks who are on the, on kind of this side of the fence that you and I are, are on in terms of, of wanting to be allies. Yeah, I think my hope is that contextual behavioral science can help people on on uh, on on both sides of the fence um, or on all sides of the fence. Yeah. So I think, for example, I know a lot of our black colleagues who have just been on the front lines right now, protesting and fighting every day. Mm -hmm. um, how can we help? dealing with exhaustion and burnout and despair. Um, there's an increased interest right now in black healing. Uh, my wonderful colleague, Robin Gobin, does amazing work with a contextual behavioral science perspective, using mindfulness to essentially help with 
black healing and black trauma right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what you know what we do is is we look at these problems functionally, um, and we can divorce from some of the content. And the general issue is when our feelings get in the way of effective action, and how can we overcome in those situations? Whether we're talking about white people who want to be allies, black people who are just burned out and exhausted, white people who are feeling defensive and dismissive. Mm-hmm. Um, functionally, the problem actually is fairly similar. Um, feelings that push us into avoidance and in- inaction um, versus using what we know, acceptance and mindfulness and diffusion yeah. to stay committed and move towards valued action. Okay. Well, maybe we could we could if you're up for it, uh, talk about some of that in the context of a role play right now. And I could talk about some of those issues for myself and we could unpack that afterwards. If you're, if you're game. Let's give it a try with the caveat being, I, I might have to join you in talking okay. about yeah. ourselves just so you're not, okay. not so alone can, in that. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, when you talked about having these values and, um, a disparity between that and like what I'm doing on the ground, um, I, I feel that, and I feel like uh, I've got ideas about things that I want to do. Um, um, and uh, and I'm not doing them, you know. Like I've I've uh, um, um, I'm also have like conflicts around, you know, am I going kind of um, am I being like. You know, I have a, I think a general disposition towards kind of being a, a people pleaser and, uh, and like, so, um, you know, when I, I want to make sure that, that my folks that I, I know or don't know, just people I see that, that they see me as like an ally, people of color. And, um, and I don't know if that's like, kind of like comes off as like pandering or like, you know, um, some kind of defensive thing. Um, no. We can sort of explore and problem solve this together, um, okay. Rather than me having any wisdom to bestow on you. Yeah, yeah, um, I know, I'm not asking for that. Yeah. Um, the the committed actions you you want to engage in for I know talking to a lot of people about this. Sometimes people are just not sure what to do. Like if I if I was to at the end of the day, look back at the day and say, okay, today I did X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And racism still exists in this country. Black people are still getting shot by police, just like Jacob Blake did last week in Kenosha. Um, but still, I tried to help today, and I did what I can. Do you have a sense for what that would look like for you, or is that part of the issue? Like, I'm not quite sure what well, I would do. There's two things that I, I, I think it would look like. One is... is um, um, putting my money where my mouth is and, and supporting uh, organizations that are working at the systemic level. So, so that's one. And that, that's the short term I see as a feasible thing to do outside of the work that I do clinically and how I do work clinically. I, you know, um, primarily work with, with um, Latino immigrants and um, folks who don't have insurance. Um, and I don't, I don't, but I don't see that as necessarily like, I mean, I'm, I am, more than fairly reimbursed for what I do there. And so it's, you know, um, um, and then, the, then I yeah, have but some, still, but still you've made choices. 
yeah and this those choices are aligned with your values you could be in private practice right I could, um yeah. just making more more money and hoarding that money or not or um so it's a minor point but uh you've made some valued choices there which are aligned with how you want to be in this world yeah yeah thank you and i i appreciate that 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 uh that feels good to hear and acknowledge. And, and then the other, and then I have like a long-term um, goal in mind and I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Uh, but um, it has to do with, it has to do more around another area of interest of mine and that's real estate and, and, and figure helping, helping, especially in Milwaukee, um, black families own their own properties and own their own places. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, I see that as a real way to 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 help out and uh, and not to do it as like a savior thing, but just as a part of being a part of the community. You know, I'm, I'm uh, and uh, well, I think you've so identified that, the, you've identified there one of the things that scholars think is one of the most crucial issues. Like, how do we address um, disparities and the potential for wealth creation? Yeah, um, yeah, um, which some economic analyses have suggested that addressing that disparity, you'll get more bang for our buck in terms of uh, efficiency of moving towards racial equity than almost any other single disparity. Huh. Interesting. Um, so you're on the right path with that one. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I've got some, it's, so it's, it's, but you know, I mean, it's, we're talking, we're talking topography here, right? We're just, I'm just talking about like, yeah you know, some things I want to do and if they're in line with my values or they're, you know, further furtherance of social progress and, and us being a one world family and uh, surviving as a species. Um, so, so, um, but I guess it's kind of like that, that's something that, that I, 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 um, because I have like, I've, I, I've spent a good couple hours fleshing this idea out with a friend of mine but I haven't gotten past that. And I see it as like, Oh, that's something I'm going to do, you know, in a couple of years, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, channeling Ibram Kendi, who is the scholar who wrote the book, how to be an anti-racist. And then previous to that, he wrote an even larger book, more of a manifesto called stamped from the beginning, which is like a massive history of racism in the United States since 1619 and the beginnings of slavery. Um, he's really the, the leading scholar today on what anti-racism is. And so just to channel him in response to what you're saying, he would say that one of the best things for people like us to do is to find our passion, find our local spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. Where can we make a difference? Mm -hmm. and work there you know the problem of systemic racism in this country is so vast and has so many moving parts that the argument is at the individual level it doesn't really matter that much where you start what matters is what matters is that you start and that many people start and the idea is that we're only going to make progress collectively with many people working in their spheres of influence in, in ways that they can. 
you know, the old phrase about politics, what is it? Think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. Um, not to stop you from donating to a national organization or anything like that. That's, of course, good, too. Um, probably one of the main things black activists say they want from white people is to donate money. Um, so that's very important. But I think also how to get you moving on some of these creative ideas you have that feel like uh, like maybe they haven't fully flamed up into a passion yet, but they're in that direction. Yeah. You know, um, that seems like a very consistent with what even Kendi would want of you for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, we're talk- what, one th- one, one, what's coming up for me as you say that is, is, as you ask me that question or pose this is, uh, is, is talking to people who have already done it and, uh, and seeing, you know, if I can be part of that effort that, that they've already got going. It's not like, you know, if I'm really not trying to be a white savior, I, I can team up and ex- lend my help to someone who's already doing what I have in mind. Cause I'm not, I, what I just said is it's, it's been done. Uh, yeah. You know. um, I think a couple of places I can join you is in, is in the fear of being a white savior or being seen as being a white savior mm-hmm. or even more broadly, just the fear of making mistakes in this arena. Yeah. Um, and that fear, the way that fear of making mistakes um, shuts us down and keeps us from doing anything. Um, mm. I've, I've been in this arena on and off, sometimes more on, sometimes off, but in one way or another for about 15 years now. And I've made some terrible mistakes, both, uh, both personally um, and in terms of kind of practices and policies and things like that. And um, what's interesting to know about it is that I've survived um, and, uh, and that I persist and I improve. Um, and I think one thing we can use our science uh, to uh, help us with is how to be essentially extinction resistant um, in an arena where mistakes can be punished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so yeah, we could explore this idea of that, you know, for you, what shows up, the content is, uh, I don't want to be seen as a white savior. And I think, you know, if we were in a therapy context and you had a client who had a, who had a goal, um, and said the fear that shows up for me that stops me from moving towards that goal is this fear, you know, X, you know, as an ACT clinician or as a CBS clinician, we'd have ideas for how to deal with that. Mm. You know, we'd, we'd suggest, we'd have suggestions. Yet when it comes to anti-racism and this work, somehow we shift and we don't recognize that we can actually apply the same mm. tools and techniques, but I think we can. Okay. Right? So I don't want to trivialize it, but I do wonder if we were to just play with that that phrase, I don't want to be seen as a white savior. Yeah. You know, what kind of diffusion exercise, for example, could we engage to, 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 to diminish the power of that particular fear on your behavior? I don't know what it would be. This is where we can collaborate. I guess, I mean, I think about just seeing, seeing that and seeing how it's like coming up and blocking me from, from taking action. And, uh, yeah. And, 
and it's a real fear and it's you're not delusional or crazy for having it and i have it too and in fact my daughter has more than once accused accused me of doing something that seemed a bit too white saviory um and um and yet we can be working so hard to not be a white savior that we end up not not doing anything mm-hmm. right um if if we get off that tennis court i don't want to be a white savior yeah. uh, this sounds like being a white savior and get on a different tennis court which is about the value and the action that you want to engage in of doing something useful with real estate something that you know how to do mm-hmm. right what's the next step right yeah yeah, I mean, I guess aside, I mean, maybe there's a diffusion piece in this, but I'm just thinking about uh, stepping back and, you know, uh, asking myself the question kind of, um, and maybe this is not in line with CBS, potentially not. I would love to you to, to tell me if it's not or is, um, am I, is it, is it more important to me that, you know, one person sees me as a white savior and 10 appreciate the work that I, than, than 10 who appreciate the work that I do, you know? Or that I'm contribute that that I appreciate that I'm contributing. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right to me. I think it's hard to to really know how to navigate through this this minefield in a way. But at the end of the day, I think we want to ask of ourselves that very question. You know, yeah. I I still at the end of the day get to be the judge of whether or not I engaged in values consistent action today. Um, I don't have a better barometer for success and hopefully we get that right. And hopefully we're informed by the needs of the communities we're trying to serve. And hopefully we have those voices loud and clear with respect to those needs. Uh, And hopefully we're getting it right. But at the end of the day, the action is the, the action is the key. Yeah. The action is the key, and you are the behavioral activation guy. So I'm glad we're, I'm here talking to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the behavioral activation guy. Behavioral activation doesn't necessarily have as much to say about all of these internal psychological okay. obstacles that are just so present when we do this particular work. Um, I think um, I think the fear that I've spoken to to some white people right now, especially since George Floyd, where they say, I feel like I need to do something more than ever, but I'm just paralyzed Mm. with fear Mm. that I'm going to do the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. right? And somehow that's not quite the way we want to have structured society. We want to structure society such that white people are actually engaged in effective action and not paralyzed by fear. But um, Nonetheless, this is the situation we find ourselves can, in. Can we unpack that a little bit uh, in, from a kind of functional perspective? Because I think there's a lot of really important cultural components that that us folks of our color don't necessarily see, but we, we, we live. Yeah. So what would be some of the, the if you could do a, like a functional analysis of, of what you just shared, of this, this, this person, that you've, these people you've talked to who don't want to kind of um, misstep yeah i i'm not sure the exact right answer but what to me is first of all it's it's very fraught because on the one hand 
uh, critiquing the anti-racism movement or the anti-racism moment mm-hmm. can immediately make one appear to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it's very important to, to try to situate any critique of the moment as a critique of, of strategy, not a critique of goals or values. And I'm completely Um, with you. And I'm, I'm also talking about just the, like going back to what we, we, we started early talked about earlier was this, the interpersonal dynamic of the interpersonal culture that, that we are operating in. And it's a, it's a stuffy one. Yeah. It's, it's like one of my favorite uh, uh, poets, disco poet, Kahari B from Chicago talks about the bland, bland world of restriction. And yeah. I hear that in the, I don't want to say the, I mean, and I'm, I'm not stepping, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying I'm outside of that either. Right. And, and I'm not either, which is why this conversation is so difficult, but I think the functional analysis that actually has to include some, the verbal networks around the word racist. Okay. Um, probably to start, you know, historically and even con- con- uh, in current times, you know, there, there are not too many words more stigmatizing than the word racist. If you look at some research on the most stigmatized words in our language, it, it sits just below um, rapist and uh, terrorist. Okay. Wow, and, really? And, I would think uh, words that go that get put on people who are, are, are oppressed would be a little bit more stigmatizing. Um, well, those might be, but those weren't included in this particular study I'm okay. right now. <laughs> um, Makes, it reminds me of what's that article, The Weirdest People in the World? Have you ever, you know? No, I'm not familiar with that. It's uh, it's God, it's got a, a ridiculous amount of citations, but it's a, it's they did like a you know meta 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 analysis, whatever the hell of and looking at how all these psychological studies have pretty much been conducted with white educated you know college students basically, and then we we you know extrapolate that to mean that that's how everybody is. So, but the acronym weird is white educated. Blah, 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 yeah. So. Right, 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 right. Okay. Sorry, to take um, you off here. Oh, it's okay. Well, no, I, I was saying I think the word the word racist is in a relational network with all sorts of extremely aversive functions, okay. and that's appropriate. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, I don't want to just diffuse people from that network in order to just have racism flourish. That is not the point here. Um, but what is the point is that in the way we use the term in today's language, the the same word is applied to historically somebody who was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and was you know engaged in lynching or supportive lynching. Um, that same word is applied to the to the person today who goes up to a black woman and says, "Can I touch your hair?" Mm. Um, and uh, was doing it at least consciously from a motivation of wanting to connect with this this person about how beautiful her hair was. And it's a real microaggression. And and actually I have research to suggest that can I touch your hair is actually associated with racial bias. Um, so, I, um, so I'm not saying can I touch your hair is fine, but the fact that it's in the same language network as the Ku Klux Klan um, and lynchings, mm-hmm. um, 
just makes it so difficult for white people to even go near any of this, even if they're going near it in the surface of trying to be anti-racist. Um, so kind of the social language structure and the way we use the language today, it's just resulting in uh, probably just a tremendous amount of avoidance and suppression. Um, and that's, that's, that's the obstacle that we have to overcome. We have to enter this playing field where we're closer to these words and we're closer to making mistakes that could get labeled as racist in order to engage in effective action. And it's just too much for most people to do. Um, we have to we have to help people overcome that so they can engage in anti-racist action, be willing to make mistakes, even be willing to have the word racist thrown at you once or twice in the service of growth, in the service of being a part of the solution. That, that might be part of what white people have to get used to. This is why there's so much discussion these days of, of expanding our capacity to experience discomfort as part of this work. And this is something we are at least supposed to be good at in our in our science, in our community. We're supposedly good at helping people embrace discomfort in the service of valued action. Mm. I think we can, I think we have a lot to, to say here how to do this well. Yeah. I, I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think it all goes back to mindfulness, connection to the present moment. There's a whole bunch of research studies showing that mindfulness um, can decrease bias measured in a variety of ways. Um, just a 10-minute mindfulness meditation can actually produce significant reductions in people's scores on the implicit attitude test, for example, that main measure of implicit bias. The, the reductions in scores on the implicit attitude test after 10 minutes of mindfulness don't last. Um, but that's okay if you're trying to build mindfulness in as a sort of an ongoing practice, as a day-to-day -day practice, um, just enough to sort of keep your anxiety down, keep your connection to yourself and your values present so you can be more continually engaged in effective action in the in the anti-racism spheres yeah 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 and, and i and that brings up another another thing that i would like to do um that i i, I have anxiety about doing that's having a conversation with a neighbor of mine who's got uh, uh two signs in his front yard one is to you know in support of uh, the the guy in the oval office right now and then the other one is a back the badge uh and yeah. and it's it's a it's a, a neighbor who uh um i i, I like him and he, he so I, i've heard him listening to npr before in his garage so i'm baffled and uh and i want to have because when i see that back the badge thing i just i get it 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 it, it it's um i i hear i hear and read um some something there and, and i'm i'm a little worried about having that conversation with him well, Marcel, I see you found uh, probably the one topic that's even more fraught and harder to talk about than race these days, which is politics. So this is how <laughs> this is how this is going between us today. I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, your your nervousness about talking to him is obviously well earned. Yeah, the conversation probably won't go very well for you. Yeah. Um, you have to decide what your values are motivating it. Is it just like you just don't want to be silent? Or are you really trying to affect a change in him, which is going to be pretty hard to do? You know, at you know, thinking of it contextually, you know, these political opinions and attitudes that we have, unfortunately, 
are so baked in at this point. They're they're a product of deeply held, you know, learnings and histories, and it's rough out there right now. Yeah, but but I would say part of what keeps me from having the conversation is that I'm I. I I have I have a fixed idea of why he has that up. You know? I don't and I mean my one of my yearnings is to have a conversation just to really understand, not to not to uh convince uh that he convert to, you know, my brand of worldview. But just to understand it, I don't know if I can do that. I, I guess I have fear about being able to to listen, to really listen. Yeah. I think it's an I think it's an admirable motivation to try to connect with him and understand and you're probably right. It's it's hard to talk about this, but it is the case that and I can share the, with you some of these studies here that the average conservative is not as conservative as the average liberal thinks the person is. Mm. And the average liberal is not as liberal as the average conservative thinks they are. Mm -hmm. the, the media truly is fostering inaccurate stereotypes on both sides, which makes people more scared to talk to each other than they really should be. Yeah. Um, this is about trying to connect with somebody as an individual trying to notice when that stereotype pops in your head that your neighbor is going to respond in a certain way or, or act in a certain way and then try to really approach that person as an individual and your genuine desire to connect. Yeah, it's difficult. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your, your energy today is going where? Because like, I, I, we've talked about a few, and we talked about you know uh, ways in which we can be anti-racist, and I, I know you're doing a lot of work in this area right now. So could you talk about about where your energy is going? Yeah, well, my lab and my colleagues are doing a, a bunch of things here. Number one, we've spent several years trying to understand microaggressions. Um, most of the research and understanding of microaggressions has been understanding how black people or other people of color are experienced, uh, how black people, other people of color experience or are impacted by microaggressions. But there's actually been no research trying to understand what are the psychological processes that fuel the, the engaging in microaggressive behavior among white people. And that's what that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to understand what drives microaggressions in white people, and then how can we develop CBS interventions to decrease to decrease that. Um, and then more recently, we've been also looking at how can we just talk about anti-racism in general, and how can we increase uh, the frequency of anti-racist behavior in white people right now, and how do we overcome all those obstacles to doing so. Um, so that's some of the work we've been doing and and um and really trying to harness the full power of CBS to maximize the effectiveness of interventions. Um if you look at the typical diversity training workshop that is presented out in the mainstream, mm -hmm. it's not very sensitive to CBS 
ideas. And the concern is that those workshops are just driving avoidance and suppression behavior and not really driving sustainable behavior change. Um, And um, we want to, yeah, we want to try to help. We want to try to use what we know to do better. Can you, do you, could you give an example or two of how CBS might principles might inform some of these trainings? When we talk, for example, about privilege, mm-hmm. white privilege in particular, it's a first of all, it's a really important concept that I think we would benefit from really exploring deeply. Um, but research suggests, and my personal experience attending and delivering these workshops also suggests that the average white participant when asked to talk about privilege, just gets defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's research to suggest that when you try to get a white person to talk about privilege, they immediately respond by listening to you all of the personal hardships they've experienced in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of pulls for the opposite. Now, from a, from the perspective of some of the basic science that drives con- uh, contextual behavioral uh, worldviews, none of this is particularly surprising. Okay. Um, we can we can look at this idea of privilege as a real threat to people's identity. And when I say identity, I'll refer to our conceptualized selves, if we want to use that that language. Self as content. We all have these networks uh, around our identity as good people, as people who have earned what we've received in life, as people who have worked hard as individuals productive, hardworking members of society, we generally don't have in our networks of self this idea that we just got to where we are in life because of privilege or because of stuff that we just were born into that is not part of the average person's identity. Um, And so we can use the self-work in ACT we can help people experience their self in a more contextual way, self as context, um, to try to decrease the threat of this idea of privilege. Um, we can try to expand our sense of self uh, to be more uh, of a process of just contact with the present moment in order to stay committed to action, in order to be able to explore privilege fully without it being so threatening. So I think there are ways we can enter into discussions of privilege, for example, from a contextual behavioral view, which should help us overcome the typical defensiveness that arises when we try to get white people doing this work. I think all this is really in its infancy. And like I said at the beginning, I'm not a certified ACT trainer. And so I would love for people who have been doing this to like generate ideas for how we can actually take CBS, take the Hexaflex, take the Matrix, and help people stay engaged when talking about white privilege rather than just avoiding or getting dismissive or defensive. That would be a wonderful outcome. Yeah, and, and, and I have my, I'm, you, you made me think about some examples in my life and folks I've, I've worked with and uh, how I just, it's, it's, I, I, I step out of, I, I have a tendency to step out of the, my, uh, 
my act hat. I take my act or CBS hat off and want to just kind of bring the hammer down when I, you know, in terms of like someone who is expressing some racist beliefs. Yeah, well, I, I understand where you, I understand where you're going. I think part of the part of the problem is most of the expertise in how to be anti-racist right now is expertise that is not coming from people with a contextual behavioral way of looking at the world. Mm. A big part of the problem there is we do not have enough diversity in our ranks to be really having these conversations, doing this work side by side with black people and other people of color. We've, you know, we've been talking about this as a CBS community for a while and until we get more diversity in our own ranks, it's going to be hard for us to really do this work well. And so what's happening is most of the expertise is coming at us from the outside. And that is just reducing all of us as clinicians, as CBS people, to just consumers of this information, just like everyone else. Um, and it's harder for us to access our own expertise um, in ways that are helpful. And, and I think we're just re we're reduced to more like passive consumers. And it's tricky because the work is hard to do, but I do think there are many problems to solve. And when we start to solve those problems, we can actually bring our own expertise to bear in ways that are real solutions. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I concur with that. And you know a lot more about the inner workings than I do. But that's my sense as well. Um, and uh, um, Things are getting better right now. And certainly since George Floyd, there has been an upheaval uh, in the, the diversity, equity, inclusion issues within CBS, uh, just like everywhere else. And the hope, I believe, is that all of this upheaval and tumult will translate into effective action and real change, change in policy, change in, um, in what the, the diversity of our community looks like. And, and then we'll say we'll, we'll have made real progress. If it just sort of sticks to this level of attitude change and a lot of people talking, well, then ultimately this is going to be another disappointing moment. But, but uh, it remains to be seen how it's all going to play out. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. And I, I just appreciate the, the kind of uh, gentle force that you bring to all to this discussion. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. It's difficult stuff to talk about. Hopefully it's a useful conversation, stimulate some creativity and action in a positive direction. Yeah. But I appreciate the opportunity yeah. to, to lean into some Thanks. really hard stuff to talk about with you, Marcel. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think one of the oldest, uh, most well-used Steve Hayes quotes in the book, perhaps one of the biggest cliches, when he says, you're perhaps not responsible for the problem, but you are response-able. Mm, yeah, beautiful. You know, we didn't get talk too much about FAP, but that's uh, your, 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 uh, your baby. That's your niche. And uh, so if anyone's interested in... in um, in Jonathan's work, I highly recommend checking out his books and articles. Uh, one I particularly found useful in my FAP journey has been the, the FAP book you wrote with uh, Gareth, uh, FAP Made Simple. That's the title, oh, I believe. Yeah. 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 And um, and I know that you uh, also had did a lot of work with Dan Rosen in uh, that uh, a book recently from New Harbinger. It's, um, yeah, Eliminating Mental Health uh, Disparities with Monica Williams and Dan Rosen yeah. and myself. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, thanks so much, Jonathan. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Thank you. Who is they? They be you? They be me? In this age of digital rage, the proverbial they. Just keep making proclamations. 
while we, especially white folks, keep hoping that they will make some form of real reparations. Because I didn't do it. Is probably what they be thinking too. It's a pity that our inheritance of wealth blinds us to our debts. Debts that our limited liability incorporated leaders of today and yesteryear keep accrediting to the last guy, ad infinitum. So I pledge to stop waiting for a hero. I'm thinking that I can do more than bring the enthusiasm of a golf clap to what is not a spectator sport. That old man river carries life. Those that came before have given their stem cells to its flow. Lest us not forget the sorrow, tears, and blood that this old man carries, from which we all drink. Now, assume a man inherits a large sum of wealth. This will affect his children's children and their children. Now, assume that a man inherits sorrow, tears, and blood, or put another way, unhealed scars from the lashes of a whip. What impact will this have on his children's children? Now, imagine you. Do you look more like the whipper or the whipped? Will you spare some of your power so that all of our children's children and their children can be proud of their inheritance and you proud of your living will? Cahill said that you gotta go to the art. It's not gonna come looking for you. Well, this debt is the same. The karmic weight will come looking for our children. What if we squared up on our grandfather's debts? It seems only fair, since we gladly accepted his golden watch. <clears throat> so, inspired by what has been an anthem for me the last few months, and that is a piece written by Kabir, Ernest Kabir Dawkins and Kahari B., the words at least, and it's about 15 years old, and it is a story of the Chicago 7 trial that took place in 1968. And Kahari B. talks about system and the status quo. And I think about that as these invisible forces that act on especially people of color to allow for a bland, bland world of restriction. Think of gravity. Think of muons, these invisible forces that act on us that we can't necessarily see, but they're there. Some days... It seems that our species is just writing one long obituary for the roaches or the corn to read, whoever we bequeath this rock to, to whoever our fossils fuel. And then I steep in the waters of someone like the badass yoga nun Gwisok, and I'm reminded that there is another way that we can evolve honorably, and that this isn't even our rock to bequeath. I'm also reminded of the words of the wise W.H. Auden, 
who said, we are here on earth to help others. What the others are here for, I have no idea. System says that to help others, we should feed them and pick up the litter, the blunt wrappers, the soda and the malt liquor bottles that we see strewn throughout system cities. It does not say question the system that allows for a world where the only solace afforded some, the only freedom afforded some, the only relief afforded some, was once wrapped in those containers, in those blunt wrappers, in those malt liquor bottles, in those soda bottles, and mostly a crime. In these momentous times, my invite is that we do our work to question the system and to support agents of change who are working at the systemic level, a la Color of Change, a la Real Justice Pack, two organizations that are doing some beautiful work that I'll put links to below. There's a certain um, um, sort of um, silent consciousness about what it means to be American that I sense coming from uh, white folks that, that I'd like to talk about. Before I do that, I'd like to say one more thing that's hard about talking about racism, and that is that uh, you know, people of color are spilling their guts and uh, doing education uh, to white people. Let me explain to you how you've got this wrong. Let me explain to you how you've got that wrong. Let me explain, and then we get cross-examined, and it's like, well, maybe your problem is blah, 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 blah. And it's always, you know, racism gets looked at as a person of color's problem, and it's not. You know, we're like on the receiving end of the problem, but we are not the problem. You know, I, I, I walk in a world where, uh, or, where black people, where Latinos, where Asians, where Arabs, all these different people are, 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 are experienced as problem people, and that, well, we're going to deal with the, 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 the person of color problem when, in fact, uh, racism is essentially a white problem. And that for you to understand what racism is about, you're going to be so uncomfortable. You're going to be so different from who you see yourself to be now that, uh, it, you know, there's just no way for you to get it from where you're sitting. And I'm not saying that you could never get it. I mean that, uh, that you need to uh, step outside of your skin and step outside of what uh, seems really comfortable and familiar to you and launch out into some real, for you, unknown territory. And you haven't gone out there like you haven't, uh, you know, gotten in proximity to uh, black people, as you say, because you don't have to. And that's part of what it means to be American to me, is to, uh, to have all these things that you can do if you want to, that you don't have to do if you don't want, uh, if you don't want to do. And there's a way in which American and white and human become synonyms. That why can't we just treat each other as uh, human beings? To me, when I hear it from a white person, it means why can't we all just pretend to be white people? I'll pretend you're a white person, and then you can pretend to be white. Why don't you eat what I eat? Why don't you drink what I drink? Why don't you think like Sing I think? Why don't you feel like I feel? God damn it, I'm so sick and goddamn tired of hearing about that. I'm sick of that. 
That's what it means to be human being to me. That's what it means to be white. That's what it means to be American. Why don't you come the hell over here? That's what I hear every goddamn day. And you know that I can't come over there. You know that this skin and that this hair and that this way that I talk and that I think and I feel will never, ever get included because I'm unpalatable to this goddamn nation. I'm unpalatable. You cannot swallow me. You cannot taste me. You cannot feel me because you don't want to. You think that you can survive without me, but you can't, man. You think, and you think that, hey, it'll all be fine when we just treat each other like human beings. And what that says to me is, don't be yourself. Be like me. Keep me comfortable. Connect where I'm ready to connect. Come out to my place. Or maybe I'll come down and get some artifacts from your place. Uh-uh. That is bullshit. When you say that your ethnicity is American, there is no American ethnicity. You had to throw away your ethnicity to become American. That's what it means. That's what it means. You give up who you are to become American. And you can pretend that it's OK because you're white. When we give up who we are to become American, we know that we're dying from it. You're dying from it too, but you don't know it necessarily. Get ethnic, you know? You know, I'm not going to trust you until you're as willing to be changed and affected by my experience and transformed by my experience as I am every day by yours. I attended a school for the first time that was predominantly white, and I had white teachers. And I walked into the classroom, and there were three reading groups in my fifth grade classroom and I was promptly put into the lowest reading group and I gathered very quickly that that was because uh, I'm of African and American descent then they put me into the intermediate reading group and then they put me into the highest reading group and you know I just boiled and churned through the whole process because uh, my reading level was higher than anything they had in the classroom I'm always dealing with you I'm always dealing with you you don't deal with him, you don't deal with me. Maybe you had an opportunity to, to deal with some Latino people, but we always deal with you, baby. Always. Every day. <laughs>